Good afternoon and welcome to the 106th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, a discussion of COVID-19 from the perspectives of paleontology, animal behavior, and the history of species extinction on Earth with Isabel Benke and Ken Lacovera. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests, future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 17th, 2020, there are 21,755,069 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 21,010,700 reported Friday. Of those 5,416,639 are in the United States, that's up from 5,280,315 cases reported Friday. There are now a total of 170,194 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 167,828, still unfortunately at the pace of nearly 1,000 or over 1,000 deaths a day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Virus Claim Life of Anne Hornicle Yuska, 63, University of Minnesota Science Educator and STEM Leader. This was published in the Twin Cities Pioneer Press on May 5th. The author is Mary Devine. Anne Hornicle Yuska devoted much of her career to increasing the representation of women and people of color in science, technology, engineering, and math. The acronym for that is STEM. As the head of the North Star STEM Alliance at the University of Minnesota, Yuska led a partnership of Minnesota colleges, universities, and community organizations working to retain undergraduate students of color to graduation with a bachelor's degree in a STEM field. She retired in October of 2019 after more than 12 years in that position. She had an incredible work ethic, said longtime friend Simone Gibolo. She was truly a problem solver and partner in the work of trying to increase representation of women and people of color in STEM. Yuska of St. Paul died April 30 at Bethesda Hospital in St. Paul of complications related to COVID-19. She was 63. Yuska was a great mentor and coach and worked behind the scenes to make sure underrepresented students at the university had the resources, leadership, and programs in place to support them, Gabolo said. Probably a lot of our students didn't realize how much work she was doing on their behalf, said Gabolo. Yuska grew up in Ohio and graduated from Denison University with a bachelor's degree in biology and from the University of California, Davis, with a master's degree in botany. While working at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, she met Tom Yuska, a coworker. I was a bicycle commuter and she asked if I would be her chaperone biking down the lakefront to the museum, he said. The two began dating a few months later and were married in 1989. For their honeymoon, the two went on a seven week bike trip from Jasper, Alberta to Wyoming, a trip that was Anne's idea, he said. When your wife says, let's go on a three month trek, how can you say no? 
She loved being outdoors. She was this consummate planner, but she was into adventure and loved serendipity. Anne had a real passion for science, education, and equity, said Joe Imholt, who worked with Yuska at the Science Museum. She wanted to create a more or level playing field for everyone, be a part of understanding STEM and seeing themselves in STEM. She was a quiet leader doing that work. In early March, Yuska came down with what she thought was a sinus cold. It didn't cause too much worry, Tom Yuska said. The things we were told to look for at that point were a fever and shortness of breath, which she didn't have. So we didn't think it was COVID. Unfortunately, that just never went away and she got increasingly fatigued. On April 6th, she was diagnosed with pneumonia and prescribed antibiotics. When she went back to her clinic on April 14th, her blood oxygen levels were lower and doctors said she should be hospitalized, he said. She was driven by ambulance to St. Joseph's Hospital in downtown St. Paul. After she tested positive for COVID-19, she was transferred to Bethesda Hospital, which was converted in March into a specialty care facility for COVID-19 patients. By April 27, it was clear that Ann Yuska, whose ventilator was a maximum capacity, was not going to survive, he said. Yuska and the couple's two children, Paul and Ellen, were allowed to see her and Tom Yuska was able to be with her when she was taken off the ventilator on April 30. People must take the pandemic seriously, he said, and he gets upset when he sees people congregating who are not practicing social distancing or wearing masks. I get frustrated when people don't understand public health, he said. Even though there is this strong sense of individuality in our country, we are all still living together and have some responsibility for others' well-being. It's fine for you to do your thing when it doesn't affect anyone, but when your actions can have these ramifications and deadly ones, I just wish people would step back and think about that. When a consequence involves losing someone in your family, to me, that just takes precedence. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation for today. And to do that, I wanna introduce my guests. My first guest, and I want to make sure I'm pronouncing her name right, so please correct me if I'm saying it wrong. Isabel Benke is a field yeah. ethologist who studies animal behavior to understand other animals, as well as to understand humans and our place in nature. Originally from Chile, she is an adventure scientist, adventurer scientist, the first South American following great apes in the wild. She was trained at Oxford, Cambridge, and University College London in behavior, evolution, and ecology. For her PhD, she walked more than 3,000 kilometers in the Congo jungle, studying a community of wild bonobos. She worked at Wamba, the world's oldest bonobo research site run by Japanese scientists from Kyoto University. Chronic bloodshed in Congo meant that at the time of her study, Isabel was the first Western person in more than 20 years to do bonobo research at Wamba. My second guest is Dr. Ken Lacavera. Ken has unearthed some of the largest dinosaurs ever to walk the earth, including the massive 65-ton Dreadnoughtus. He is a recipient of the Explorers Club Medal, the highest honor in exploration, previously awarded to pioneers such as Neil Armstrong, Jane Goodall, and Sir Edmund Hillary. His TED Talk has been viewed by over 2 million people, and his book, Why Dinosaurs Matter, published by Simon & Schuster, is a, winner, is a winner of the Nautilus Book Prize. Currently, he's researching the extinction of the dinosaurs. He's also the founding dean of the School of Earth and Environment at Rowan University and is executive director of the Edelman Fossil Park, where he and his team are building an $80 million museum designed to connect people to deep time, the contingencies of natural history and the fragility of our planet. Isabel and Ken, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID calls today. Thank Rob. you, Claude. Thank you, Scott. Isabel, did I pronounce your name correctly? 
Yes, you did. Well, actually, uh, probably not because it's German, but I pronounce it like you do phonetically. So that's good. Oh, okay. <laughs> as long as we're both wrong, that's fine. Yeah, um, yes, exactly. So <laughs> I like to start out um, the way I do with all of these calls, which is just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is there today. Ken, can I start with you? Sure. I am calling from southern New Jersey. Uh, I live in a little town called Swedesboro, founded by the Swedes before Philadelphia, actually. And um, I've been working from home since uh, March 11th. And uh, I'm sitting here in, in what looks like my library, but um, I'm actually a jazz drummer and I've been using my drum set for my office for the last six months. You probably shouldn't have shown that unless you were willing to, uh, I won't put you on the spot this time, but next time <laughs> you're gonna have to play. In fact, I had a Taiko drummer on uh, a few weeks ago. So you would be the second drummer that we've had on, on COVID calls. What's the, what's the infection rate down there where you are, Ken? What's the, do you have a sense of how things are going there right now? Well, I know that the transmission rate just, um, just fell under one. Last I saw it was, it was, um, 0.98, um, so it's moving in the right direction. Um, we've been on a pretty tight lockdown here in New Jersey. We we are in stage two now of opening. Um, and um, at the university, at Rowan University, we are starting classes in um, a little more than a week. And um, we will have some classes that will be in person, some online, some are hybrid courses with students um, taking different days. And, um, you know, we've been planning very hard for this, um, but there's so much coming at us every day. Uh, we'll see, I'm sure we'll have to adjust along the way. Well, thank you for that, uh, that introduction as to how things are going where you are. Isabel, the same question to you, where, where are you calling from and give us a sense of how the pandemic is going there. Um, yeah, um, my situation is uh, perhaps um, slightly strange because I am calling from New York, I'm calling from the Greenwich Village, um, but I've only been here only a few days. Um, I am from Chile and I was in Chile until very recently. And so I, can, I know more about the situation in Chile than I know the situation of New York. Uh, having said that, it's been incredibly strong and interesting to walk Manhattan these days. Um, in Chile, I spent the last six months um, in my family's ranch in the countryside. And when you are in outside in nature, whether there is a pandemic or there isn't a pandemic, things do not change very much. So the, and because I'm very used to that place, you know, I mean, I just worked more, but life, you know, I'm, I can see, you know, migration patterns of birds and owls and, you know, look at uh, uh, what the animals are doing, which is what I usually do. Uh, but coming to New York and, and seeing Manhattan, which is like mm -hmm. the, the epitome of, you know, human interaction, uh, so relatively empty and quiet uh, is, it's mm -hmm. been humbling. And I have to say that even here, there's a, an interesting combination of uh, a juxtaposition um, because of course, 
you know, people are observing, they tend to be observing, uh, I think better than in, in well, at least in, in Santiago where I was, mask use and social distancing. But in the, in the village, the restaurants are serving outside, which actually makes it for a slight, for kind of lovely bohemian feel because there are no cars and mm. they have taken the streets. So it's an interesting combination of lack of human activity together with kind of, you know, dining outside, which is interesting. But I have, I'm full of admiration for New Yorkers for what, you know, they, had the peak in April, and, and they still have the discipline mm. to keep going. What was your travel experience like? W was it uh, what you had expected? Or I, I have yet to get on a, an airplane or travel during this time, I, and I wonder what it was like for you. It was incredibly eerie. Uh, Chile, Santiago is the capital of Chile, and we have, say, roughly half of the country's population uh, under lockdown since May 15. A lockdown has been one of the most strict lockdowns in the world. Uh, we are only coming out of lockdown now. I think, in fact, Santiago is the sixth city in the world with the longest lockdown, but we also had evening curfews imposed, you know, by the military. So it's been very, very hard. The reason I'm saying that is because I assume that my travel you know, you project what your local experience is into the rest of the world. So I assume mm. my travel experience mm -hmm. would be concomitant to that. Uh, and I arrived to Santiago airport and it was empty. It, uh, and so it was, you know, you know, kind of appropriate to what we were living. But once landing in Miami, uh, then everything seemed, you know, it was basically very busy uh, and yeah, it was kind of shocking in a way, but you get used to it. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, again, it's a strange juxtapositions, you know, these things we take for granted about, you know, how many people are going to be in an airport or how many people should be in the streets of Manhattan, even though there's something we'll certainly talk about today, even though you think you know how uh, behavior works. Um, we're always you know, like learning new things about it, even in this in this very strange time and observations mm -hmm. we might have made in the past, which are are being challenged at this time as well. So um, let me, let's get into the science a little bit before we turn into COVID-19, just a bit of the background for each of you. We would, it would take many hours to run through your, your full scientific records, but I would like to just get a sense of the kinds of, of research questions that got you involved into the, in the work that you do. Ken, can I start with you? What were the, the big questions that got you into the kind of paleontological research that you do? Well, I guess, you know, for me, it was my desire to time travel. And, um, you know, when you think about it, we, we're seeing just a tiny, tiny little fraction of the biodiversity that has ever existed on the planet in this little sliver of time that we occupy. And I want to see more. And I found out that I could see more. I could time travel with stuff you buy at the hardware store. Um, so, you know, you can, I have a time machine, it's a shovel and I can dig down through the layers of Earth history. And when you learn to read the language of the rocks, it's like you get to flip through the book of Earth history. And there are so many stories captured within. And, you know, I think it's, it's humbling and really important that we, that we attend to the past because right, the, the present is, is essentially nothing, right? It's, it's gone immediately. 
we don't have access to the future. Nobody remembers the future. Nobody can do experiments in the future. And so the only information that we will ever have to guide our way into the future, which right now is very perilous for us, comes from the past. And it was Winston Churchill who said that the further back you look, the further ahead you will see. And so we really have to look to the deep past to understand how species have evolved, how they've been um, spread across the planet, how extinctions have happened, how climate has changed over time to really help contextualize our current situation. Um, in my research, I've happened to focus on dinosaurs. I could do similar research if I was studying clams or sponges or wombats or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but I study dinosaurs and I, I happen to focus on the, the biggest dinosaurs. Um, I always say paleontologists who are smarter than me study smaller dinosaurs because it's a real pain in the butt to work with the big ones. Um, and I spent uh, the bulk of my career actually down in uh, Patagonia, just across the Andes from Isabel mm -hmm. in uh, Argentinian Patagonia. And it was down there in 2005 that I discovered um, the remains of an animal that I would much later name Dreadnoughtus, which means fears nothing. Um, and I gave it that name because this animal all fleshed out in life would have weighed 65 tons. That's the mass of nine T-Rex that's the mass, mass of 13 African elephants. Mm. And when you're 65 tons, when you're as big as a herd of elephants, what do you have to fear? So dread not, dread not us. And um, mm -hmm. so it's been great working with that animal. And really, wh whatever type of science you're in, it's always instructive to look at the end members of systems, right? The biggest, the smallest, the slowest, the fastest, that sort of thing. And so when you're studying these giant terrestrial sauropod dinosaurs, we know that they're pushing the biological limits of what is possible. And that then helps us understand all the rest of it, I think. Mm -hmm. I have to say that um, I'm, as a historian, the only science I did well in college was geology. And I had never quite put it together the way you described it. But of course, it, it made sense. It appealed to my historical historical thinking and the way you, you describe this as a time travel mechanism is really, uh, is really profound. I didn't quite thought of it quite that way. Isabel, let me, let me ask you the same question. What were some of the, the sort of first inklings that made you think you wanted to do the kind of work that you do? What are the questions that you continue to be inspired by trying to answer in your scientific work? Thank you. The first, there are I think three components uh, to how I would answer that question. The first component is a huge yes and to um, what Ken is saying. Uh, the notion of deep time, uh, it's as attractive to me as, I was going to say as a black hole, but that's a oh, terrible metaphor. <laughs> so it's the notion of deep time. It, it's not only like, like poetically very, meaningful uh, but intellectually one of the most fascinating notions that i think we can encounter because we are so bound as you know social prime is so bound to our present that and we can sort of imagine 10 and 100 and even a thousand years but when you go what, a million years 10 one billion like what is that and then mm -hmm. how can you even start to think and the notion that life, of course, has been, life is this great, you know, lab of creation and and just 
A&E, sorry, not A&E, sorry, research and development R&D, uh, mm -hmm. in which he's been trying different forms. So the, the, the first part of that is just always looking at the history of life and going, how has life tried to do X or Y? So any question, for example, you can think of you know, how does creativity work or innovation or, you know, death, <laughs> a birth. Mm -hmm. uh, and then my, my first approach is to go, okay, how has history of life dealt with this question? Um, and so that fascination in both in the kind of poetic and uh, scientific side is, is always been very strong for me. The second component uh, that because I'm a I'm an animal behavior person has to do with understanding the other. Uh, and of course, today the notion of the other is is very popular because we're thinking about the other human and we you know what mm -hmm. are the bounds of cultures and groups. And but I guess I started from the other end because I had a history of bonding with animals, in particular animals that were not the usual domestic animals. So my first, I've heard, I'm not sure if I've told Ken this, but I have to say that my first best friend and perhaps the the friend that is responsible of so much that came afterwards uh, of teaching me about animals, uh, it was a dinosaur. A feathered dinosaur, uh, and because uh, it was a parrot, uh, I brought up a, a, a young parrot when I was eight years old, um, and he was wild. He was not tame, and of course, what it takes for an eight-year-old to actually become real friends and develop trust in time it took me a long time. It was a time that parents don't really look after kids, <laughs> so. Uh, um, I was told, okay, you have the whole summer. This is what you're going to do for the summer. You're going to tame this bird. And and then you, you go, okay, I guess that's what, I guess that's what we're doing. Uh, and I developed this real friendship with the bird. Uh, and, you know, we lived together for the next 20 years. Uh, of course, when you're a kid, you never think your life is weird, right? You always think like, yeah, this is normal. So I, I would take this bird with me everywhere. So if like my friend invited me to stay over, I would call the mom and say, can I take my parrot? Because my mom told me I had to do that. Uh, but the bottom line is that it was so obvious to me that we had a bond and that, you know, I come with the parrot, so to say. <laughs> the, the reason I'm telling this story is because only later I became aware of you know, what the discussions in science were, and before that, what people would think about animals and that they would say things like, well, animals don't have personalities and don't have emotions, or, you know, it's all just like reaction as, as if their minds were, uh, you know, just uh, reactive tools. And I thought, I don't know. That's, I, I have this history with an individual that, obviously had personality and emotion and intelligence mm -hmm. and a sense of humor and preferences and very strong social intelligence like alliances and mm -hmm. enemies and so anyway that's just to say that the second component was this desire to get to know the other and because this other was not even a mammal and typically you, you know you can bond with a dog or even mm -hmm. primates they are in a way easier to study because you know, we are so close, we share the same 
facial muscle so you immediately understand what a smile or not is but you know a dinosaur because of course you can know this better than anyone a, a bird is a therapy dinosaur uh, and to have a relationship like that with that so anyway that, that was the second component that the idea of the other and how does that and wanting to probe the limits of what being human is you know you know what is common to all of us and what's different between us and what is common between us and other animals so i think that is that that is a perennial perennial question and the third component i would say that uh, was a decide that this was developed later was learning rather learning huh, learning that i love the wild um, and that wanting to bring that into the science because of course in my field there's fantastic research that is done in labs and in captivity and there to just see the full expression of an animal's behavior in the wild also because i love being myself in the wild so that's partly a personal preference but the the idea of of nature and wild nature was always very attractive to me well thank you both for these i mean couldn't have asked for a better uh advertisement for lives in science than what you've both just described and, and ongoing mm -hmm. curiosity um which is super crucial and at this time and I've been really excited to speak with both of you because um, we've talked on COVID calls with many epidemiologists and people in public health, people who are really plugged into the, 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 the boundaries of their inquiry right now are very tightly focused on COVID-19. But I was really curious to speak with both of you to see what kind of um, analogous thinking or metaphorical thinking if we broadened out our frame a little bit in terms of other species and in terms of time we might be able to bring to this conversation and Ken I want to turn to you first with that you know you talked about the time travel back uh, through the book of of you know human or of the book of of earth the history of earth and one of the features of that is extinction as a, a sort of repeating pattern ex extinction of, of life forms on Earth, and I guess sort of starting with that, I'm I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how you think about. I don't know if we can talk about pandemics in the past, non-human pandemics, but extinction um, and events that do um, give us something to think about as we as we try to build some context around this moment in which we find ourselves in right now. How do you how do you think about that across time? Yeah, um, since there has been complex life on Earth, uh, things with hard bodies that leave good fossils, um, that's the last half billion years. And in the last half billion years, there have been five major mass extinctions. The most recent one was 65 million years ago, and that was forced by an extraterrestrial event. That was the, the asteroid that landed and took out the dinosaurs, except for birds and 75% of species on the planet. Uh, the other four are all related to climate change, uh, which should be a warning to us. And uh, you know, you see a couple things when you look at extinction. When you look at the, the biodiversity of the planet, there's kind of this steady march towards increasing biodiversity because organisms get better and better 
at segregating the niches in the environments and specializing in those niches and taking advantage of those. Um, and you also see the there's there's mass extinctions, right? Like when the dinosaurs die, but there's also a background rate of extinction. Animals naturally go extinct. And you see the background rate of extinction decreases over time because what's the greatest selection pressure that an organism has, that a species has, it's to not go extinct. And over geological time, organisms get better at not going extinct. And so as the as the background rate decreases, and specialization increases, you see the increase in biodiversity. Now what's happening now is the rate of extinction has skyrocketed because of humans, because of what we're doing in the Anthropocene. Um, and you know, if, if we're together for an hour here today, probably three species on planet earth are going to go extinct while we're here. And probably we won't, know about it and maybe we won't even know those species existed when a species goes extinct it's not a news event they just kind of fade away and then biologists will argue for another couple decades over whether they're extinct or not but there are animals like uh, felice margarita the sand cat that occupies uh, northern africa and some of the middle east are they extinct maybe um, they're, they're so sparse that it's really hard to tell. And if, if they go extinct, that's just going to be, I mean, imagine there's going to be one individual that dies quietly in the night in a burrow in the sand and no one is going to know about that. And that's how these animals fade away. But because of our activity, we've really spiked that rate. And so I think the lesson from deep time is really that, you know, if I mentioned the language of the rocks. If you learn the language of the rocks, you can go anywhere in the world and the rocks, they start to whisper to you and they always say the same thing. And what they say is it didn't have to be this way. Like it's all so contingent, right? You could, there are an infinite number of histories that we could have had, just like there are an infinite number of futures that we could have. And the only thing that's locked in is this present right now. And, um, so you, you can go back and you can find so many points in earth history. Like you, you take the asteroid that took out the dinosaurs and you go out 3 billion years ago and you hit it with a piece of popcorn and it misses the earth by a wide margin at the end of the Cretaceous and the dinosaurs don't go extinct and us little mammals that are hanging out for almost the entire time of the dinosaurs trying to stay away from dinosaurs, particularly their mouths we don't get the chance that we have now if you you know switch the winds one way or the other across north africa six million years ago well then maybe forests don't turn into savannas and then maybe australopithecus mm. doesn't evolve and all the things that that come from that clan and so we can just see over and over in earth history that these tiny little turning points change everything. And those are just the ones that we know about. Imagine all the trillions of ones that we don't know about. And so, you know, we're in this day, it's pretty obvious to see that we are at a momentous, you know, nexus of history right now, today, particularly this fall, I think. Um, and the future that we all aspire to is not guaranteed. That's what our history tells us. And so it tells us that we have to fight every day in every way to make the future that we all want. 
So just to stay with this a, a, a little bit, Ken, with you first, and then Isabel, I'll come to you. What are the pressures? So if we're if we're looking at a, a sixth, you know, wave of extinctions right now, what's different now than the previous one? Or because you use this term Anthropocene, which means a period in geologic time in which humans are the dominant shaping force. So that's a bit of a clue. But can you say a little bit more about what's different about this moment in time? Yeah, it really all comes down to rates. And so, you know, it's a bit of a nuanced message, but it's not particularly warm now in Earth history. CO2 levels aren't particularly high right now in Earth history. But both of those things are increasing at rates that now look unprecedented in the geological record. And life, the biosphere, is really good at coping with change, but not over human time frames, over geological time. And so, you know, it was it was warmer in the Cretaceous period, and dinosaurs were thriving and CO2 levels were higher. But it took tens of millions of years to achieve those levels. I um, I try to use analogies that college students will understand. And so sometimes I say, you know, what would be the effect on you if you drank a six pack of beer over the next 10 years? Nothing. How about in the next 20 minutes, right? Big difference there. And it's, it's about the rate. So what we're doing to the climate right now, the earth will eventually take up all this CO2 that's in the atmosphere. It'll take it up <clears throat> uh, through weathering as it forms limestone. But that takes geological and so right now, you know, we used to have this one time period called the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum that happened about uh, 50 million years ago. And that spike was always thought, well, we haven't, we, we've exceeded all the rates except for that one. Well, now we've exceeded that one. So now we are literally going into, into a period that's unprecedented in geological history, which can't be a good thing for us. And, um, you know, we, we don't really know where all the tipping points are. And so that's what's really scary is there are a lot of unknown unknowns out there. And um, mm -hmm. you can tip a system out of balance and it might not, it may never come back or it might not come back within the lifespan of a civilization. So, you know, it's kind of like we've become these, these, planetary engineering, you know, the, these the species that's capable of engineering an entire planet, but we don't yet have the wisdom and the knowledge and the foresight to use the tools that we now have uh, at our disposal. It's like you have the Starship Enterprise and a lot of Isabel's bonobos got released onto the bridge and they're pushing all the buttons and pulling the levers and we don't actually know how these things work yet. It's a really bad idea. And there's no planet B. I mean, I kind of bristle when I hear Elon Musk say he's going to put a million people on Mars. No, he's not. Mars is terrible. We have a whole continent here on Earth that we basically can't inhabit. That's Antarctica. There's only been 11 babies ever born on the continent of Antarctica. So we don't even have a breeding population of humans on one of the continents on Earth that has niceties mm -hmm. like air and water. <laughs> you know, I, I hope we explore Mars. But we're not, that's not planet B. We, we're, we're stuck together on this little tiny lifeboat in space and all we have is each, is each other.
I want to remind people who are listening to COVID calls and I'm talking with Ken LaCavera and Isabel Binkate today. Isabel, let me turn to you now and sort of bring some of the perspectives from your own work. Um, as Ken was taking us into deep time there, I want to hear more from you. I was reading you had a BBC interview, really great interview, goes into your thinking about COVID-19. One of the points you make in there from your own research is, is about the fact that humans are social animals. And you sort of think a bit about what we can infer from the behavior of primates to maybe understand the pressures that humans are experiencing right now as we have this shared global experience, which is a rare thing, as you also point out in this piece. Help us think a little bit about, you know, take us a little bit into your research and how you infer from primate behavior to what humans are dealing with right now. Well, um, obviously that's a huge question, um, but I want to start uh, linking it to what Ken was saying, um, just, I guess because I was, just, that what he was saying sparked so many thoughts. Uh, I think the notion of deep time and extinction is something that I wish we could bring to the greater public. It, because it does contextualize. It contextualizes life and it contextualizes death. Uh, and I think we are in urgent need of both. Uh, I hear arguments on both sides that are you know, well-intentioned, but deeply misinformed and, and you know, the consequences of which are very bad decisions. Uh, the first one is, oh, because extinction is natural, then that animals are going extinct today, it doesn't matter. So I think to that, I would just say something very simple that Ken has already uh, touched on, but it has to do with the rate of extinction. And, and there, I think one guideline that can be perhaps useful for people to think about is that, of course, you cannot conserve the earth in kind of a, or conserve ecosystems in a kind of oh, what was there, because the notion of what was natural changes with time. I, I see even in conservationists that do not have an evolutionary background, this very well-intended um, effort and, and money's expense. But the, the kind of changes in time and landscape and species confirmation that Ken is talking about, I think they would really guide us to better decision. Let me give you an example. In the UK, for example, the conservation community really agonizes for what is it that we should conserve? Is it the landscapes from 5,000 years ago when you know people were there, or 10,000 years ago, or 20? You know what is natural? Uh, and I think at to this point, given the geological force that we have become. We should be aiming to conserve the ability of ecosystems to change themselves, to be resilient. Mm. And so biodiversity is a key aspect on this. Um, and I want to tie it to what Ken was saying, because in the sense of climate change, I also hear, I think, understandably, everyone, well, not everyone, so many people think about CO2 levels because obviously this is what we need to think about. But if you look at the earth as a complex system and as a whole, of course, you will know that the earth has coped with change, which is also one of the arguments that you hear from people that you know are 
can change denialist. I don't know how you can, but that's a different topic. And the point here is that Earth can cope with change if ecosystems are resilient. My worry is that because we have we are just decreasing biodiversity and we're basically an anthropogenic force. We do not have, we're not conserving the ability of life to respond. If you're healthy and you know you catch a flu, you know, your immune system can respond. So I would like to really make a call for more very specific habitat conservation measures to conserve mm. habitats and to link these habitats between each other, to create landscapes that are connected. It's like a really good you know, immune system shot for the body. You see what I mean? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm. you will catch, probably we all will catch Corona, uh, but our greatest uh, tool is to have as strong as immune system as possible. I think we, we have tools to create a stronger immune system in Earth's capacity to respond to the inevitable increase in temperature that keeps coming. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of um, point that out. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the, the ecologist eye, the complex systems way of viewing this is it's important because CO2 is crucial, of course, but it's also what we can measure. I'd like to see kind of a landscape connected habitat approach um, as well um, anyway so having said that you asked me about my research uh, and social animals um, this has all obviously a, a link with extinction again um, because we you know as a, as a primate we're not a very strong primate um, you know this is often remarked we're kind of like look at our skin <laughs> kind of wimpy uh, so you go like how come we you know went from a population of you know a few thousand individuals maybe a million individuals to the force of 7.8 you know how come we first avoided extinction ourselves in the savannah uh, with the great predators that were around at the time that we you know say take two million years ago Homo erectus was around or three, four, five million years ago when Australopithecines were around. And anytime who has spent time in the savannah suddenly feels protein, you know, because there are mm. great predators around. And uh, I would just invite anyone that can be outside to think about the predators that could uh, get you. And it's a humbling experience. The point that that highlights, I think, is that our greatest force as a species is our ability to cooperate and uh, we have become super cooperators uh, our phylogenetic inheritance as a social as a primate is to be social primates as an order i what i mean is like the order primates i the 250 species or so uh, that belong to a greater family uh, we tend to be super social but then not even great apes have groups of the size that we have. Uh, so there's something that we took with our inheritance of being social primates. I, that means that we have interdependent success. You know, when my fitness depends on your fitness, right? That's why, uh, you know, the, the, the notion that no man is an island, it's also true at, a, at, at an evolutionary fitness level. Um, 
But then we took that inheritance and we took it to the next level with a kind of social insect strategy in, in which we have this very, very large societies of individuals that do not know each other personally. And that is a big difference between us as social primates with other social primates. You know, typically, when apes live in groups that are much, much smaller. Bonobos that I study, their community with 13 individuals. Uh, say, chimpanzee community might go up to 200 individuals and so on, but you are below the 500. Okay. And so this thing that we do in which we cooperate with strangers based on categories, whether it's your mm. religion or your political affiliation or the country you belong to, we're able to make very quick judgment calls with whom we cooperate, with whom we, with whom we trust, and with whom we form a coalition or not, based on these categories of individuals that you do not know previously in a face-to-face -face interaction. That, that is a very unique, um, interesting human trait that combines kind of the primate legacy with a social insect strategy, I would say. Um, yeah. So let me, um, Ken, let me bring it back to you, just building on what Isabel's talking about and the success of Homo sapiens. Um, you introduced me to a term that I was not familiar with, I think it's probably not the first time you've done that since I've known you, but um, what is Neopangea? And, and I asked this as a way to go a little further with this conversation and think about how the success of humans, um, Homo sapiens, might also be introducing us to this uh, context of this sixth extinction episode that you've been talking about previously. Yeah, so if you go back a quarter billion years ago to the... Um, start of the Mesozoic era, that's the era of dinosaurs, um, the, the continental tectonic plates all just happened to bump into each other. And that supercontinent that resulted, we call that Pangaea. A lot of people are under the misconception that the, the land started out as Pangaea. That's not the case. They just, the continents just bumped into each other at that moment. They hung out together for a while, and then other tectonic processes began to fragment the land masses first the north and the south split off and then they started to split east west and we ended up with the continents that we have today now um it's important to understand the the mechanism of speciation and speciation pretty much always requires geographic isolation of populations because to become a species you have to go in your own genetic direction and in order to do that you have, this population has to stop exchanging genes with this population so that they can go in their own direction. And eventually when that becomes uh, mutually exclusive, then they, they're a, a separate species, right? Um, so speciation tends to, the rate of speciation is enhanced by fragmentation of land masses for terrestrial species. Um, and the rate of extinction tends to go up when land masses get together, because what that means is that everything has to compete with everything else. Um, there's some other things like climates get more extreme when you have these giant, you know, hulking masses of land. But if everything has to compete with everything else, there are fewer ecological niches for individual species. So fragmentation of land masses promotes speciation. Now, what's happening today? We have 
globalize the world. And, and that's generally thought of as a, as a good thing. And I certainly have been the mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a recipient of that. And I've enjoyed flying all around the world and experiencing other cultures and digging up dinosaurs on lots of different continents. But the result of our easy communication with all of the other continents is that we bring along hitchhikers or sometimes we bring them intentionally. Um, and essentially life on earth now has contact with each other, right? The species on one continent have easy access to species on another continent, a, a situation that didn't exist 500 years ago. And so metaphorically now we have created Neo-Pangaea. We have not tectonically, but because of our transportation systems, reunited the continents once, once again. Mm. What happens when you have one giant landmass? The rate of extinction goes up because everything starts to compete with everything else. Here in the in the Philadelphia area where we live, um, you know, we're we're very worried about the spotted lantern fly right now that just came over from Asia, and that is a crop killer. It, it eats blueberries, which are very important here in southern New Jersey, um, and other uh, fruits. And you know, that's where it's from in Asia. It's balanced. It's part of the ecosystem. It has predators. It comes over here. It doesn't have anything that's adapted to preying upon it. And so it just kind of goes crazy. And that makes it more difficult for other species to survive. And so that's just a, a tiny, you know, example of Neopangaea making it harder on individual species. So you've sketched out a situation where humans have managed to overcome um, our geological uh, conundrum of having, you know, we're all over the world, but we've overcome it through technology and through the social forms that we've that we've made. I had never thought about it the way Isabel you were describing it. You know, also that um, you know one of our strengths is our ability to um, basically cooperate and trust without knowing each other. Um, and I, I want to build on both of these insights. And and you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the last few minutes about last few months and minutes about what this moment might portend um, as, a, as a moment in which we can take stock, in which we can think about caution. We've experienced, I mean, the global economy has not totally shut down, but greenhouse gas emissions have slowed. Uh, people around the world engaged in something I'd never seen in my life, which is that they all acted basically for their own protection, but the protection of each other, they locked down, they stayed at home for a period. Some stayed less time than others, but I was absolutely impressed with this global pro-social moment. Okay, so the, I, those are impressive things to me, but it, in it maybe portends possibilities for conservation. I mean, Ken, you said, you know, we have these moments of, uh, you know, the future is unwritten. I mean, we could, there's possibility in this moment. So Isabel, I guess with that as a as a background, can I bring you in on this? Yeah. Not so much I, are you are you hopeful or are you pessimistic, but what are you learning in terms of possibilities from this moment that might affect things like you were talking about biodiversity or conservation earlier? Yeah. So I think the question needs to be unpacked on what would we would like. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. and, what do we think might happen? I obviously do not, 
I do not like to do futurology and do not possess um, clairvoyant powers. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, I think we're all aware to a lot of the kind of very optimistic views um, that emerge, particularly when seeing these beautiful images of large animals uh, coming into human cities. Right? We've all seen them, you know, wild boar in Spain, and there were mountain lions in Santiago, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. so, that alone, I think the value of that to me has been that, okay, these were images that humans that are, you know, typically city bound and had not seen these animals. So, and so I think the animals made like a great, um, you know, branding a case for themselves and go, look, we're here, we're beautiful, we're large, but maybe consider us. Uh, I do not... I uh, think that goes much, unfortunately, that goes much further than that in the sense of like nature reclaiming its course because, you know, thanks to like animal behavior, we have some idea why this is happening. So it's a combination of, you can think food and fear, right? Animals will change their, you know, intelligence and plastic in their behavior and they will change their ranging behavior depending on food and fear. You know, they're looking for food and what is the landscape of fear changing? What do I mean by the landscape of fear? Uh, you can map, literally map a territory with, you know, the food resources. You know, where can I find fruit? Where can I find meat? Where can I find good pastures? And so animals respond to that. And there were perhaps opportunities in, in the anthropos, a, the decrease in human activity that offered more resources but also the landscape of fear changed i what territories and what portion of the territory was very um dangerous for an animal changed with the change of our of our activity so that it is not surprising therefore that animals would have changed accordingly uh, that is just one example to say we are learning a lot uh, and this is a very useful period in order to learn more about animal behavior take an obvious thing bird behavior so cities cities are not only using obviously a lot of um, space but they're very loud we have a lot of contamination not just in the air but in terms of noise and light um, we know that birds will change their behavior accordingly they will sing louder they will shift their circadian rhythms earlier or later, depending on the species, etc. So there's a lot of research going on at the moment that I think it will be very interesting. So we're learning, learning, learning. And we will also, like, like Ken was saying, how very large or small animals teach you about the possibilities of a species. I think uh, we are learning so much about what the limits of behavioral plasticity in animals and how they're adapting to anthropogenic change mm. so i think that is very useful uh, so I, that's what i want to make it very clear that it's a learning opportunity <laughs> it, as mm -hmm. for the and perhaps a branding opportunity for animals as for the real conservation benefits uh, uh, i just hope mm. uh, i just hope that the branding feeds back and and the, the experience somehow we are able to be more intelligent but of course, this is not, you know, this is not making, this is not going to be a long-term benefit because we will resume activity as soon as we can. My, my fear is that although there are 
technologies that are greener and more intelligent and more according to kind of human and wildlife and human and other forms of life coexistence, uh, we might not take advantage of them. I would mm. love to see more, there are already, but more initiatives that are explicitly going, guys, quick, quick, how can we rebuild our economies while at the same time using the technologies? Right. I mean, we have a huge opportunity. Whether we will be able to do it or not, I understand. I mean, poverty has increased and it will continue to increase. Uh, so the drive for more resources is already here. Uh, we have also seen uh, an increase in illegal logging and hunting in places because they, you know, the park guards are not there because tourism is not there. So it's not necessarily uh, a success story uh, for wildlife at the moment. It is a huge opportunity. Uh, so of course, you know, I would like to see that happen. I, I think the last thing I would say that is to people is for people to think about their own changing behavior in relation to Zoom and video calls. Why? Because video calls were not invented four months ago. You know, guys, we have had Skype since when? I don't know, ten years maybe. I don't know. Somebody will know. But we've had video calls for a long time. The point I'm trying to make is that a technology often is invented a long, long time before something happens that forces humans to adopt the technology and ramp up their use. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, that's, of course, that's what we did with, with Zoom, right? Zoom was not invented in February. Uh, and so perhaps the same is, might be the case with a lot of the green technologies. I mean, they are already around, uh, but we haven't, like with Zoom, we haven't had like the behavioral push uh, and the coordination to really ramp them up and make it a global thing. You know, working from home, mm -hmm. you know, has been around for right. centuries, right? But right. suddenly everyone's like, oh, guess what? <laughs> you know, all, not all work needs to be from, you know, right. a central place in a city from 9 to 5 p.m. So I guess I'm saying that would be my hope that our own change in behavior uh, gives us an insight into uh, adopting uh, technologies that are already around and making a better case for human and other forms of life coexistence. Ken, like Isabel, you're not only a, a field scientist, but a professional science communicator. So let me get your take on this, this same question. You know, this is a moment in which uh, science is on the front page of the newspaper every single day for months now. Is it a moment of opportunity? Isabel has kind of taken us into, into kind of a spectrum of the possibilities in, in this moment. And she did so without once mentioning the president of the United States, which I think is, is laudable. But there are also forces of disinformation at work that are trying to to disrupt or taint the way we even see the reality of this moment. Can you talk a little bit about how you, you see, again, these opportunities or possibilities and challenges as a science communicator at this time? Yeah, um, I do see opportunities. Uh, I don't know whether they will be realized, but um, you know, I'm hoping that a few things 
come out of this as kind of the silver linings to this very horrible episode. Um, one could be that maybe Americans reconnect with um, the value of expertise. Um, there's a reason why people, you know, go off and get PhDs in, in things like public health and virology. And, you know, thank goodness for experts like Dr. Fauci and all the people that are working on the vaccine today. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that that becomes the case. And, and really, I'm seeing this whole thing almost like as a dress rehearsal for climate change. And as, as bad as the COVID situation mm -hmm. is, the climate change that we're forcing is going to have a much more severe impact. And it's going to be much more durable, unfortunately. And we're going to really need to look to the experts for guidance on this. And as Isabel says, like, you know, that already exists. The technology that we need to address the climate crisis exists right now. The expertise that we need exists right now. We just have to turn to it. And, you know, I'm also hoping that, that this event does for people what the geological record has done for me, which is to teach us that it doesn't have to be this way and it doesn't have to be the way we want in the future we need to work for that and i think you know most of us can see that everything can go off the rails and that can happen really really fast and if joe biden and kamala harris are elected we're going to do essentially a laboratory experiment because we're still going to have the covid pandemic and so we're going to have the covid pandemic and we're going to try dealing with it one way, and then we're going to try dealing with it another way. And mm. I think in our experiment, it's going to be pretty clear what the better way is when you have, hopefully, an administration in place that is listening to scientific expertise and is acting for the benefit of all, not for the few. And if that works, if that finally gets us out of this crisis, a combination of good science and good governance, then maybe people will begin to see, oh, this climate crisis is real and there is a way out of it, but we need good government. We need to listen to the scientists and, you know, and maybe a 10 or 15% uh, tax on, on carbon, maybe that's not so bad compared to shutting the economy down for months maybe more than once, um, maybe that won't seem so draconian anymore to do the really pretty mild steps that we all need to do, the, the minor sacrifices that we all need to make to get our climate situation under control. That, I guess I hadn't quite thought of it that, that way. You just outlined a, a social science experiment on a scale of which we've never seen in my lifetime with ramifications already at 170 million deaths just in the United, 170,000 deaths, sorry, in the United States alone. Um, that's an extraordinarily provocative way to think about it. Isabel, did you want to react to that or does that? Yeah. Um, yes, standing um, Ken on the 10% thing. Um, I like to, I, I like personally to go through a thought exercise, uh, which is that of, given that now we are so aware of death, our own death, and, and the threat to the death 
I mean, the, of the health of our loved ones because of COVID. What percentage or what sacrifices, I think we've all thought about it, are we willing to do uh, for our own health? And say, for example, if, you know, somebody would tell you, in order to have a good immune system, you know, you only need to take care of, say, half your body. And you go like, great, you know, I can trash the other half. <laughs> in order to, to, to have a good immune system, you need to, you go immediately go like, it's probably more like, three quarters right you just feel you don't have that <laughs> yeah. much leeway you know you can like yeah, yeah. have a really bad night um, maybe i don't know i don't want to put numbers to this <laughs> um, but the thought exercise is to do the same in relation to earth and uh, what proportion of earth should we try and would we be willing to conserve as a connected healthy ecosystem services and healthy ecosystems healthy landscapes uh, approach in order to you know not only coexist with other forms of life which i believe very much enriches our you know psychological and spiritual well-being as human beings like do you really want the world without whales and elephants and large right. fauna it's a boring world right um but, uh, but also the, the point of that, the one health people make. I mean, we, our health is really dependent on the health of Earth. And we have seen that. We have hopefully understood it better mm -hmm. through learning what zoonosis is. I, you know, when viruses from other animals jump to human animals, this has happened again and again, happened in Ebola, happened with HIV, it happened with this coronavirus, etc. And just a very simple, prediction that the more fragmented uh, and fragile ecosystems are, the more opportunities for zoonosis to occur. So from simply like a very selfish perspective, um, we should be wanting to create this large tracts of protected area. And then what's that mm -hmm. number? Mm -hmm. Eo Wilson suggested we should conserve half of the earth. Um, at this point, maybe we should, you know, follow what um, work coaches say in terms of goal setting like let's start small uh, let's why would we say one third of the earth like really one third of the earth shouldn't be <laughs> surely we're uh, you know able to do that mm -hmm. if we are the cleverest animal that has ever existed it seems just so dumb uh, to trash your own home um, and and we have the science to know i mean of course there's like big leeway here but we kind of know you know which sites are priority how to connect them you know when where does the greatest hotspots of biodiversity reside so th that's just one kind of in thought experiment that uh, i would invite just to think about you know the kind of issue of what proportion of the earth would be willing to conserve and um, you know to conserve the immune system of it um yeah yeah, We're I'm almost sorry. up on I'm time. Sorry. I want. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. no that's it. Um, no, I just I, want to. Just... Are you sure? Okay. No, I actually wanted to add something to uh, what you yeah. guys were talking. Please. In relation to science, just at the moment of science, it we have an enormous cultural opportunity uh, at a time of a great cultural danger, uh, which is that of two plus two equals five. No, let's not go there. We have only 400 years of science as humanity. 
we have already made great progress. You know, we all we obviously have a long way to go, but I would urge we need empirical thinking. We need science, not just as science in the sense of what the science products are, but also the type of empirical thinking that comes with a scientific world, with a scientific approach. Um, I think I understand why people might be scared because they think science will deprive them of meaning and like, no, the, the flower does not become as beautiful when you know, you know how pollinization works, quite the contrary, the, the stars shine brighter if you understand the basics uh, of like galaxies. Uh, I think we need not just the science itself, but the way of thinking. Not only because that's how we solve problems, we want to solve these problems with science, but also as humanity, perhaps our greatest danger is us with each other, you know, kind of social polarization and the risk we're seeing now. A lot of it comes also from not understanding how we work and not understanding that we create realities in, the, in an intersubjective way. But that's not mm -hmm. the only reality. There's also empirical reality. Uh, and when you understand that, I think your all for the world increases and your respect for science increases. And also you see that mm. science is the same for everyone. <laughs> In each part, there, there, there is no cultural relativity regarding science because gravity does not work different from, for different cultures. So that is a unifying force. And I think that not only would serve to solve problems better, but, but also for us as a species to get along better. In a time that we have well, few unifying forces, that's what I mean. Just reminding everyone that we're uh, you're listening to COVID calls and the conversation today with Isabel Binky and Ken Lacavera, and we're we're almost up on time, but I did want to get one last question in, and it's really, um, you know, since I have this opportunity to speak to to both of you together, and your work is often in the field. You're both explorers in your own right. And so I just wanted to ask you sort of personally, anytime I've had a scientist on, I've been asking them what it means to them to be out of the lab, like literally for a while, they couldn't get to the lab, to not be able to have meetings with your students. How are you coping in this moment um, as scientists who I think really both yearn to be in the field? Um, how are you coping with that absence? And I guess... How soon are you planning to get back out there? Isabel, can I start with you on that question? <laughs> sure, thanks. Um, I'm itching, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think of exploration as a dynamic process of that you go out and explore and then you come back and integrate. So a kind of dialectic. Uh, I think organisms mm. do that. <laughs> You know, organisms play and then rest. Uh, and I think of myself like, I go out and explore and then I come back and I think and I you know, tidy my backpack, so to say. Um, um, I'm, yeah, I'm itching to go out into the world again. But on the other hand, this has been a huge exploration. Like my, the explorer part of my brain has been like, whoa, uh, lit up mm. big time. Uh, so because of the uncharted territory uh, aspect of what's happening, so I, I'm really grateful for you know you and Ken to for these opportunities to talk because you know an explorer does not explore alone. So um, yeah, I think this is what has been missing. So I guess yeah, 
but that's what I would say. I'm itching to go out, but I'm also grateful for, for the learning. As you were speaking, I was just thinking about at the beginning, the way you described your foray into the streets of Manhattan or being in the airport. I mean, I really am impressed. I'm convinced that you uh, even look at those quotidian things as a mode of exploration in this time. It's a really, to me, an important way to think about um, this moment. Ken, I'm going to give you the last word on this on this question. This is the longest I've been in one spot in my adult life. and. Um, I too, I'm just itching to get out there. Uh, my my two favorite things to do in life are to uh, dig up dinosaurs and to stand on stages talking about dinosaurs. <laughs> and both of those things have been taken away. And you know, it's there are thousands and thousands of um, field expeditions that have been canceled around the world this year. And so, for field science, it's really gonna, there's gonna be a big dip in you know, 2020, 2021 in the amount of data that comes out of the natural world. Mm. Uh, a lot of people are getting caught up on old data sets and you know, there's ways that you can still do science at home and publish. Um, but you know, so many projects are on hold. Uh, it's, I know it's very frustrating for, for a lot of scientists. But, you know, I am hopeful that um, we'll come out of this and, uh, and build back better and, uh, you know, uh, maybe get out there in the world with, uh, with a, a better understanding of the fragility of our planet and maybe with um, a redoubled uh, motivation to uh, take care of this tiny little boat on which we all reside. Well, we're going to maybe take the opportunity when you each of you gets a chance to go back into the field it'll be fascinating to see how your um you know attention to the details of that experience might be heightened having been kept away from it as you said for the longest time in your in your career this has been an illuminating hour i want to thank you both so much for your insights and to help us think about this problem of covid 19 um not as a series of numbers it, individual countries, but to think about it in these much more broad um, and powerful ways. So um, I want to remind everybody also that you've been listening to COVID Calls, and we're on every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow, we're going to return to an ongoing discussion about COVID-19 in Italy, and I'm going to have Giuseppe Forino tomorrow as my guest. And uh, thanks again, Isabel and Ken, for all you're doing, and thanks for taking this time today. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Really fun. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.